Hello! And welcome back to The Backdrop, untold stories in golf. I'm your host, Matt Considine. In this episode, I spoke with the founder of the RGB Tour, Patrick Koenig. On January 31st, 2018, Patrick set out in his aptly titled RGV, short for Recreational Golf Vehicle. His mission? To take a year-long tour to play as much golf as humanly possible in every U.S. state. In fact, Patrick is currently on pace to set the unofficial world record for most rounds played in a calendar year. We've got maybe three or four states left that I'll play golf in, but right now we've golfed in 46 different states, 334 different golf courses. What I find so cool about Patrick's tour is how he was able to successfully make it about the people and places he was visiting. The RGV's primary purpose is to raise money for the first tee in Greater Seattle, where his journey first began. So far, he's raised over $16,000 and should do much more before the end of the year. Listen in on our conversation and see why Patrick's refreshing take on golf makes him one of our favorite people in the game. Well, we're, we're here with Patrick Koenig of the RGV Tour. Patrick, how are you? Oh, I'm excellent. I'm here in New Mexico, and I just got off the, uh, the course not too long ago. The sun set recently, so... I had a couple of days where I didn't play golf, and it was bumming me out. But I golfed today, and emotions are high. <laughs> now you're um, calling in from the RGV. Yes, I'm in the uh, podcast and photo editing studio, also known as just the table <laughs> in the R- RGV. <laughs> Multi-purpose. It, it serves so many purposes, I'm sure, uh, with a life on the road. And, um, you know, before I, I, I'm going to get to the RGV tour, we'll get to a lot of golf discussion, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. uh, here's my personal favorite question to get these podcasts started. If this podcast were about something other than golf and you were still our guest, what would that topic be? Good one. Um, and uh, I'm going to go with dancing with a focus on wedding dancing strategies, techniques moves and uh, we just talk all about it yeah because i just came just hot (laughs) off of a wedding in texas and boy the dance floor was hot i wasn't expecting uh you seem like a renaissance man but i wasn't expecting (laughs) dancing uh especially dancing. so what's your strategy Do do you get out there early do you take your time do you wait till it warms up a little bit what do you do sometimes i like to just crash in it depends on the vibe you got to feel out the flow and if it's a slow start, I mean, people are hesitant to hit the dance floor. Well, then maybe you just high kick out there and pump up the party. But most of the weddings that I attend to are, I mean, people are excited to dance. So you got to, I like to kind of hang back. And then once you feel your song, I mean, they usually start off with like an earth, wind and fire. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. And then, oh, that just, that fires me up. So there's a couple songs that I really go for. And they usually play some pretty good danceable music at weddings. So that's, that, you know, it depends. You got to feel out the vibe. And then, I mean, there's all, once you get going, there's a lot of different strategies you can deploy. And I'll give you a little, little tip. I'm a non drinker, but most people think that I'm very intoxicated in just the <laughs> manner that I dance. It's, uh, it's, it's free flow. And the key to just faking everybody out, at the, towards the end of the wedding, when they're playing some of the jams, take your tie off and tie it around your head. Soak up that perspiration and let people know that you're letting loose. <laughs> I I do like 
to dance at weddings. I, I've always been that way as long as I, I can remember. Um, but my problem is this. After I've had like, you know, your, your early 30s, you just go through the wedding gauntlet. And right. every weekend it feels like there's a wedding and it's a lot of the same people. And what I started to realize is that I have like three core moves. And, and is every, and now I'm like, everyone's looking at me saying, oh, he's just busting out the leg thingy. That's all. Yeah. He did that last week. Yeah. You got to diversify. You really got to, you got to get the shoulders into it. Really whip that head around. I mean, you need a full body, um, maybe incorporate the high kicks. People don't see coming. You got to have a lot of room for those. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to kick the bride in the face. Could be a hazard. It's, uh, you know, you got to, tr- you got to be open to trying new moves. Um, other things you can use, like props. You know that tie around the head is a, a form of prop. But if you can find a wall close to the dance floor, make love to that wall. People will get into that. Or maybe like a, bring a chair out there. I mean, I've even incorporated a, a briefcase into some of my my dance moves at at a wedding. Um, so, got to be creative. Briefcase. Wow. And no, pull out all the stops with the briefcase. Yeah, well, they had a, it was like a photo booth, you know, and they have all sorts of props in the photo booth. It was like, I'm bringing this briefcase out of the dance floor and people liked it. I love it. I, I got in, new inspiration. I am I'm also getting married this year. So I'm thinking I got to, you know, really pull out the stops for my own wedding dance floor. So uh, this is good. This is good. Hopefully our, our audience can utilize these strategies. Yeah, I mean, we could dive deeper, but we're here to talk about golf, right? <laughs> we're we're here to talk about golf. That might be my favorite answer, though, to that question. Um, so, the RGV tour. You know, some of our members are longtime followers of PJ Caning on uh, on Instagram, so I'm sure they a lot of folks already know you know what's going on, and they're following the tour as you roam your your tour day North America. But uh, but for those that might not be familiar, can you just take a few minutes just to describe the RGV tour, what it is, what you're doing? Uh, for those that might not be familiar. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, essentially, I quit my, my job. I was a sales guy. I quit my job to golf every single day. And along with that, the two, the two um, number one and number two goals was the first one was just to have fun. I was going to golf every day, and I didn't want to get all these other things involved in it. I wanted to make sure that I was having fun because a lot of this is financed out of my own savings. And then secondly, and maybe most important, is we're raising money for the first tee of Greater Seattle. Those people join the tour. It's an open tour, so anybody that's near me and wants to play, I'll do my best to come out and play with you. Uh, People are just donating to the first tee. We've got brands that have donated different swag items, RGV Tour swag, and I'm able to give those out as as people, people donate. And so we're cruising around the country. Uh, This is kind of towards the end. We're nearing the victory lap. We've got maybe three or four states left that I'll play golf in. But right now we've golfed in 46 different states, 334 different golf courses. We've welcomed over 650 RGV tour players onto the tour. And we've raised over $16,000 for the first tee. And I love it. I've loved every second of it. That's some numbers there, man. I haven't I haven't heard the compilation of it yet, but that's I mean, what's your current pace? How many courses is that going to be for uh for the year? Because you started January thirty first, right, of last year? That's right. So we've got what is that, maybe 
two and a half months left, something like that. And the current pace is right a little over 400. Um, one of the things that came up that was not a goal, but I don't know if I readjust, I'd have to pick it up a smidge. The world record for foreign, for um, number of golf courses played in a 12-month span or one year is 449. So when I tell people that, they're like, oh, you got to go for the record. But I didn't want to change my two priorities, you know, to raise money for the first tee and to have fun. And so maybe having fun, I love playing golf. So maybe I'll just hunker down in Palm Springs and go bananas 36 a day um, to see if I can get there. But I don't know. I haven't reached out to Guinness yet, and I'm not sure what they need to confirm these rounds. If you need a witness for each one, it, it would be a nightmare to go back and get 449 witnesses to say, yeah, I played with the guy, and he, he played 18 holes. Yeah. So it's a pretty good pace. In the, in the summer, we were doing 36 a day pretty much every day. Uh, it was just too good to pass up the courses and the people on the East Coast and the Midwest. There's so many places to play. And I want to see them all. Oh, I want to see them all. And it's tough because, you, you know, you're there for a week in the state and you've only can play, you know, if you're there for a week, that's maybe 14 courses. And some states got, you know, I want to see there's 30 courses worth playing, maybe 50. And um, so I got a lot of places to go back to, but I've also played a lot of outstanding places. Yeah, the, you know, there's there's so many things that come to mind for, uh working that schedule i mean you know one you, you've 650 people that you've played golf with i mean the amount of communication you must manage on a weekly basis while also traveling from you know city to city and state to state how, how do you what's it how do you kind of do you have an assistant with you i don't i don't have an assistant a lot of people have applied for the intern position but I, i'm reluctant <laughs> to invite a total stranger into the rgv and especially if i don't know you know what their qualifications are. It would be great to have somebody that would kind of document because we could churn out a lot more content because it's just, it's an interesting thing. And the stuff that goes on here every day out in the golf courses and the people that I meet is, is there's a story every, every single day, but it's, it's challenging, right? You know, so if you're playing 36 a day and driving to the next course, you're pretty wiped out. You're not going to sit down and edit a hundred photos and send a bunch of emails and, do a podcast, but you kind of got to figure it out. Like, I mean, give me an example for today. I woke up and laid down a podcast and then headed over, played some golf, uh, flew the drone. And then I, now I'm looking to plan my next move and following up an email. So it's, uh, it's a tough schedule, but I mean, everything that, that I'm doing out here, I love to do. So I do a lot. It doesn't really feel like work, but it's, uh, it's a busy, busy days. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you can tell, um, you know, when I got to, to meet you and play with you that you, you truly enjoy it and that's cool to see, um, you know, and, and the work you're doing for the first tee is awesome. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's $16,000. That's pretty sweet. And that's mostly generated by the people you play with. Right. I mean, you, you take donations, um, from, from folks that visit the tour. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's usually in like the, you know, thirty to forty dollars. I think our average donation, and it's mostly in person. We're not doing a lot of online stuff, although some of the stuff does come in that way. But when people come out and they play around on the RGV tour, to me it feels special. And I think you ask anybody that's joined the tour, they we've gotten some great feedback. People are like this was the best golfing experience I've had. That those always just tickle me to 
fact that I could give somebody else an experience like that is is amazing. And they're happy to happy to chip in just a little, you know, ten bucks here or there. I mean, people that I I think that they generally don't donate to charity have been more than willing to open up their 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 pockets to to the first tee. And most people are familiar with the first tee in the game of golf. So it's a it's a great charity to to have as a benefactor of of all these rounds of golf. At New Club, we work with First Tee. We did an event earlier in the spring uh, supporting them. And, and the, the, it sounds like the Seattle chapter. I listened to your podcast with, uh, was it the uh, – you guys were at Sam yeah. Valley. Yeah, Evan. And it just seems like a really cool chapter that uh, you know, is working hard to get more kids into the game of golf, which is important. Yeah, I think, you know, I reached out originally to the uh, headquarters, and I didn't, I didn't get a response. And so I was like, well, this is a, I'm basically just going to cut him a check. And so I, I knew Evan and I was like, well, why don't I give the, the proceeds to, to Evan? Because Evan is an outstanding coach at the first tee. He's an awesome dude. And I know he's going to take that, that money and do the best with it. So, I mean, it's, it's as grassroots as you can get and it's going right to the kids. I mean, these guys, you know, $16,000. I think Evan did the math. And somewhere like we're going to subsidize 160 kids getting to experience the game of the golf over the next season or two. And that's, that's powerful stuff. So, so one of those kids gets into the game like I do and has a lifelong experience because of something that I did out here, man, that's, that's crazy. Awesome. And I was a, I was a, I like to think I was a Monday qualifier for the RGV tour. Uh, Cause I was the only one able to play with you on a Monday, but uh right. We we had a great experience. I'm actually wearing the tee you gave me after my donation. Oh. I got I got the tee on. I'm looking down here. I'm trying to read upside down. It's no cuts, no butts, no three putts. That's right. We might have had we might have had a couple three putts. <laughs> we did, we did. It, the, the the match was getting tight, so you know we couldn't pick up the three four footers anymore. But maybe the darkest I've ever played uh, since at least since I was a kid. Something that, about coming down and knowing you just got all the golf you could in that day. It's totally dark. Can't see your ball, but it's just, I mean, golfers will do that. There's, there's a thrill to it for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I hope you haven't forgotten your, your highlight from our, you know, I went for round two with you at Beverly the next morning. Uh, oh. that, I think I, there had to be maybe a top 10 shot in, uh, in the RGV oh, yeah. tour, right? Yeah, we've had five hole-outs from over 100 yards, and that one is right at the top. I've got a couple other hole-outs that I can tell you about one recently in, in Texas, but let's talk about this one because I it was um, – I think it was like the fifth or sixth hole out there at Beverly, and I hit it in the fairway bunker right up against the lip. I was a little grumpy because I was – you know, just kind of went out sideways, and I was like, yeah, I don't, I, I don't like doing that. And so I, was, I had my uh, – my grunt mode on, which is not advisable. This was, I, I say, is golf karma working backwards because I pulled out a wedge. And we couldn't see it, but it was right there. And when we got up to the green, there's no ball. And it's definitely not long or short. So, sure enough, in the hole for a hole-out birdie, that was a hell of a shot. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. And, and I'll add to that because – you know, it's early in a round. We had just met each other. And I think it's so cool when you're playing with people you don't really know. You know, I've seen you on Instagram, but you, you don't know until you really spend some time with somebody. 
And when you hit in the bunker, we had such a good discussion about fairway bunkers from the time that you had to chip out to hitting that shot was kind of hilarious because, you know, you and I took totally different opinions on it. And, and I'm like, well, don't hit it in there. And you're like, I like the rescue shot. You know, I like the hero shot. And, and we had a good little discussion, let the other guys play. And, and sure enough, you just can the next one. So <laughs> it was it was really memorable for me. I was like, okay, maybe this RGB thing is, there's something mystical happening here. Yeah. Well, we, I had another one um, that would really kind of tickled my fancy because um, I've got a buddy named Joe. And if you know Joe, this is this is even better. And it's um, so we're playing out. I was in town for the the wedding in Texas, a little satellite tour stop. But I got my first one just way right, and it's not, it's into like the trees. It's totally gone. And so I just go up there and I drop one. And Joe looks at me and goes, Ah, oh, it's a generous drop there. <laughs> and, and I was like, Well, Joe, where do you want me to drop it? Like I can go back here, or like there. It's just gonna be a, a hundred or like a one twenty shot. And he's like, oh, that's just a little generous. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, where do you want me to drive? He's like, yeah, right there is fine. And so he kind of gets in me a little bit. And I'm playing with my buddy Joey, and we're it's a two-person match. And I look at Joey, and I go, I'm going to hold this out just to piss off Joe. And sure enough, his wedge hits the front of the green, rolls up into the hole. Joey and I are just going nuts. And Joe's <laughs> over there in the fairway with his perfect drive thinking, oh, we just went he was thinking he was going to get back to one down and now he's, now he's three down. And that was, uh, that was a good little, good little number really stuck it to Joe. <laughs> did, did Joe, uh, cite improper drops before the scorecard was signed? No, because I mean, under the rules of golf, right. If he, he said that was a, that was a fine drop. Hey. Then everybody in the foursome agreed that it was fine. And I played under the uh, permission of my playing partner. So there's no recourse for, for Joe there, which is what, what makes it so satisfying. Sorry, Joe. Let me get him next time. <laughs> next time. And Joe's he, a good golfer, though. I think, I, mean, he's, I think he shot 73 that day, but we got him. No aces yet on tour, huh? Yeah, that's another thing. I mean, so I've been keeping track. Because I had a streak there where I was just really flagging him. And we've had... Well, I've had 14 shots on a par three inside of two feet. I mean, if you put down 14 balls just inside of two feet on a par three, it just, <laughs> just looks like one of them is just going to buy, by the luck, going to go in. But no, none of them have gone in. Well, I feel like it's coming. You're in the, you're in the fourth quarter of the tour, I, I think. How cool would it be like last round or something? Yeah, I know. I mean, so I, I love the fact if I had one, I'd just be a guy that's got a hole in one and there's no story there. I kind of love the fact that I don't have one and I'm, I'm really gun, gunning for it. So we'll see. I mean, it might happen. It might not, but either way, it's going to be a, a magic moment. Even if I'm just playing by myself and it goes in, um, yeah. it'll be a pretty epic celebration and probably an emergency podcast. I think I'll jump right on and we'll, we'll talk, talk the first ace, but it hasn't happened yet. Oh, yeah, that's a that's like a Instagram live moment for sure. If it does occur, there's a pond nearby. I'm jumping in. That's what I've said. Um, could be a little inappropriate depending on the situation, especially because I join up with some strangers on like the <laughs> first hole, and then I'm swimming in a freezing cold pond. And <laughs> moments later, might, you know, be, might be a little awkward. Yeah, you know, a quick shower. Um, just you know, stay nice and clean. 
so before moving on, Chicago, what other spots in Chicago or in and around Chicago, I should say, did you uh, did, did stand out for you? Did you feel were, were special? Oh, that's a good that's a good question because there's a lot of great golf in the Chicago area. Um, and the one, the last one that I played was pretty pretty awesome. Uh, of course, called Black Sheep. It was a pretty neat neat little number. It's a little bit outside. You got to drive maybe it's at least thirty minutes outside the city. Um, Sugar Grove, Illinois, mm-hmm. and you got twenty seven holes out there. A real kind of link style golf and that was a good one. It was cold and breezy when we were out there, but that was a fun, fun little number. Um, Rich Harvest Farms, you know, so that's an interesting one because I had heard so much about that golf course before I'd actually played it. Everything from, oh, it doesn't belong in the top 100 to, ah, it's a little quirky and, you know, not my cup of tea to, but there it is in the top 100. So obviously it gets people talking. And I was like, these are the sort of courses that interest me are the ones that, people bring up and they want to talk about and they have an opinion one way or the other on those are the best courses i think i mean if it's right on that edge i mean that's interesting it's compelling golf maybe it's not as fair as some of the other ones um so i was super excited to see rich harvest farms and the way that i kind of explain it is i mean it's the guy um just just built the golf course the story is that he had three holes I don't think they'd let him into Augusta and say, well, I got a ton of money. I'm going to, I'm going to build my own golf course. And so he built three holes and then it was six and then it was, well, then it was 18. And there's a couple holes. I think that, that people get um, a little frustrated with, maybe they're a little tight and there used to be a tree in the middle of the fairway that people didn't like, whatever. But I, I didn't find anything wrong with any of the golf holes. I thought it was really a fun place. And it reminded me a lot of, just a guy that loves the game that was said, Hey, I'm going to build a golf course in my backyard and I'm going to do it how I want to. And that's what he, what he did. He's obviously got more resources than most of us when it comes to building things in our backyard, but he did a, he did a really cool job. And I think the, uh, well, they've had some good stuff there. The NCAAs were there and it's a, it's a cool place. I like, I like your take on it because it's very polarizing for golfers yeah. um, around here. It, actually, a good friend of, of New Club is the revenue manager there, a guy named Alex, and he, he's a really good golfer and a really nice guy. And uh, you know, he says the same thing, but the, the thing that you just said perfectly is everyone's going to talk about it. You know, you'll stand on tees, and maybe they're a bit of a head-scratcher, but um, everybody's talking about it after the round, and, and that's not so bad. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of stuff that's fun. And, you know, you go to where golf began, and that's where the the soul of it lies in, in Ireland and in Scotland. And you'll find a lot of holes that are head scratchers. And those are the fun ones. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. it's not everything in golf has to be by this formula. And I think um, a lot of courses do that. They say, here's the formula for a great golf course. And I don't necessarily think that's, that's true in every instance. I mean, there are bad golf holes out there like this one I just don't like. But um, – the, the spirit of quirkiness and kitschiness, I think, is I'm a big fan of it. It's a little different. That sort of stuff is is cool to me. It, it's funny when you look at how you, the many ways you can play golf. You know, sometimes I really like a place like uh, Rich Harvest Farms or a Butler National is another one here in Chicago. Uh, very different mm-hmm. golf courses, but just from the standpoint of penalty, 
you know, I, it's cool to to go really test yourself on a on a very difficult golf course. Can I pull off this shot? Um, and, and and that's sometimes fun. The thing that I kind of struggle with with a place like Rich Harvest is just it's difficulty for the you know 15, 20 handicap, and um, it, they just it, it's much harder for them to have a good day or a good time, I should say. So that's the only time that I'm like, ah, oh, maybe, maybe they could do a few things a little differently. But, uh, you know, regardless, it's, it's unique. It's challenging. There's places like that that are just fun. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There's so many different aspects to what makes a good golf course great. And for one player, it might be the favorite. And for somebody that's on a different skill level, it could be just a, a miserable slog. And so to build the place that kind of satisfies all of those requirements is very tough. And that's what's great about golf is there's different courses and people like it for different reasons. And the best ones, I think, do do it just a little bit better. They get all the details right in all the areas. And then you walk off the, the 18th green and you go, man, that was something. That was something special. It's kind of hard to put your finger on. But, I, I mean, the best ones are like after 18, like, I want to do it again. Like I could do this hole this way or there's different options. And, oh, yeah, I mean. So on the, on the topic of, of good ones and – best ones i mean your your photography and your instagram feed specifically and i just i didn't click into anything i just scrolled and i'm just mm-hmm. like wow is are these you know drool worthy if you're a golfer who loves the game looking at your complete work from this past year is is pretty incredible um do you when you're taking pictures what's your strategy i mean i think you know, all of us are amateur golf photographers in a way. You know, if we play a good course, right. we take a pick. Um, I, I got to play with you. I kind of watched a little bit of, of what you do. But uh, from a professional photographer to us amateurs, what are some strategies you do to uh, to capture a good moment? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of different things you got you to gotta look for. And most of the time, I don't have the benefit of spending a whole day and getting the right light and going out there without my club. So I just you know, I shoot and golf as I go, and I've gotten pretty good at it. But, I mean, things that you look for, is the lighting is, is so key. I mean, you've got to be – so I'll schedule key times where I'm like, ooh, early morning, you'll get some of that, that morning golden hour. Or uh, my favorite is the, the twilight where that sun is setting. And the lighting makes such a huge difference. I mean, you could take the same exact photo at different times during the day, and one is fantastic, and the other one is just, you know, you're not you're just a throwaway. So – a big one that I see a lot of like the amateurs doing is just basic composition of a, of a photograph. It's not too hard to, to get in there and realize that you want to have a subject. It's mostly the green and you don't want to have 80% blue sky. You want to have a, a compelling foreground and an interesting subject. Maybe it's something quirky or a, a neat hazard, uh, typical, or maybe a, a way that the light hits the grass or things like that, or a cloud in the sky, a tree that you want to, want to kind of capture that that spot and you know i think you want to make sure it's all just in there right like the composition needs to be so all those things are highlighted the rule of thirds is a is a pretty good one that's pretty easy thing to just kind of google and understand what it is and then put your subject on those those crosshairs so i try to do that as i go and i take a lot of photos and then at the after the round i'll delete half of them because I mean, I'm just kind of snapping as I'm as I'm going. When I see something that catches my eye, I I go for it. But and then like today, I was golf, golfing at a place called 
Black Mesa, and it was really interesting because you've got all these hills uh, up in New Mexico. So I'm running up and down the hills to get these these different angles based on which way the sun is, and um, so it was a it was a fun day. But you can kind of you know take a get up on a hill, get some elevation. That makes a makes a good difference as well, and just go a little bit out of the the beaten path to get a different angle. It can make a big difference in your shot, but. Thanks for sharing it. It's just, it's so interesting because, you know, you look at the feed and it, it, it makes you want to go play golf, you know? And, and I think that's uh that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I always get when I, I love that compliment when, when people see it and they're motivated to play golf or it reminds them of the time they played someplace. I mean, that's, that's what I'm trying to do is essentially I, I just love being out there on the golf course and I want to capture that moment. I'm like, this place is so cool somehow take it with me or share it with other people and be like this was just an awesome place to be at this point in time and if you can capture that with your camera i think that's that's powerful stuff and that's the magic of, of photography so i, I want to get into to some of the superlatives but not i'm sure you've had answered them so many times i, I want to kind of give it a little diff, different spin what what percentage of courses do you think you've played that are private versus public for the tour yeah it's a good question and I, you know, when I set out there, obviously, if you look at the American golf landscape, you look at the top 100 courses, I think probably 80 of them are private. And any golfer wants to play the very best golf courses. They want to see the exclusive places. They want to see everything that's out there. And so that's me. Um, but I would say, I mean, as you don't want to miss some of these public tracks and you don't want to miss the people that play on the public tracks because those people are fantastic and so it's been a pretty good mix i'd say maybe 70 percent maybe 65 percent private the majority are private just because that's where the, the the quality lies in america but i mean you look at some of the top tier public courses and you'll find some gems out there that people just ignore because they don't have the big name architect or the the private history and stuff like that so there's great places out there you can find for just pennies compared to some of the, the bigger names, the private clubs, things like that. But I like to mix it up. I mean, I'll go play a Muni in a heartbeat. Yeah. I, I noticed that. I mean, I, I like that. That's just cool that you mix those in. Um, is there a, maybe let's start with the, the public courses. Is there a favorite public course experience you've had? Like maybe not, maybe not course, but your overall experience, where was the top public one? Yeah, there's a lot of good ones, and those are the ones that I find that have the best experience are like 15 bucks, because I played so many of like the, the quality courses, and I kind of you kind of get used to what that experience is like. It's fantastic, but it's great to go play a place like, well, at the beginning of the tour I played Northwood, which is an old Alistair McKenzie design through the redwoods of Northern California, and it's just a, a religious place to play golf. You got these redwoods just lining these fairways and the McKinsey thing kind of adds a little bit of uh, legitimacy to it. I, you know, it's got that history and there's some good strategy there that's, that's hidden in the, in the grass. that's not mowed every day and it's 15 bucks to go play it. So, I mean, that's a, that's a gem of an experience. I played there with my dad and he's, he's not a avid golfer like I am, but he'll get out and hit it around. And it's, it's just great, you know, to play, play with the pops and, at a special cool place like that. One of my favorite photos from the tour happened there, I think behind the third or fourth hole. And it's just a, uh, it's a cool place. And, 
other little nine holers. I mean, you can't not mention uh, Sweden's Cove in Pittsburgh. Um, well, Pittsburgh with just one T, and and it's um, King Kong's is the designer there, and it's the little little nine holer that could, and it's a full blown nine holer. And that experience is is so cool because I walked up and the uh, the Sugarloaf guys there were having a little something called they called the shindig there, and they invited me graciously to to crash the party and boy that place is just it's special. I mean it's it's got all the things you'd want, very reminiscent of like a, some of the the hot architects that are out there, you know, like a Gil Hans or a or a Doak. It's got these fantastic greens that could play a hundred different ways, and if you're anywhere near it, go play. Go play Sweden's Cove. I mean, there's so much good stuff out there if you dig into it. New York Times did an article on it, and it's just and it was a flat piece of land, and they turned it into this really cool golf landscape. And so you'll see more from King Kong's design, I'm sure of it. And I don't know, they'll probably get a big deal here somewhere in the future. I don't know if they're going to be working for Mike Kaiser or a place to do something, but I'd be surprised if you don't see a King Collins design that gets in the top 100 with just rave reviews in the next decade or so, five years. Yeah. I, I, uh, I got to connect with Rob actually. And yeah, I couldn't get over how, you know, cause I've read all the articles now. Um, the, the New York times article you mentioned and Andy Johnson's done some stuff on them and you know, the yeah. ringer, the shindig, there's this, it's just this place that it seems like people can't, not write about it after they've experienced it or share it. I mean, it, it's just so cool. And, and when you think of the attention they've got from real passionate golfers, I don't know what I expected from Rob. I just thought it'd be a busy guy. I could, I couldn't get over just how normal the guy was and how warm he was and kind and just interested in what we're doing at new club. I was like, wow, this is now I understand why this place has such a a heart to it. (laughs) It seems like, it, it stems from from those guys that started it. It was awesome. So when I, when I walked up there and just started saying hi to people, he was the first person that I met. He's just sitting there looking over the ninth green as people are playing into it. And I, I go up to him and I introduce myself. And he's like, oh, man, I was literally, he's got his phone open. He's, and he, was, he was liking one of my images on Instagram. And so, <laughs> there's a, I mean, I'm going to like the guy right away. Uh, but he was just a, just a normal dude. That's cool. That's cool. What about uh, private club experiences? So maybe, maybe it's a little bit of course, but the overall experience from arriving to to leaving. What was your one of your top ones that come to mind? Well, I mean, it's an easy one to answer because I was fortunate enough to play at Cypress Point this year, and that place is um, that's right at the top of my top of my list. It's a it's such a cool experience, and it's filled up, I think, a little bit because as Nate Golfner knows about. Cypress Point, and it's not easy to get on. And if you do get a chance, your expectations are through the roof, and it's so exciting to just walk out there. And it's got all the, all the, all that you could want in a golf course from just the, the quaintness of the the clubhouse. I mean, you hit your first tee ball like right outside the pro shop, over a 17 mile drive, and away you go into this just magical walk. The walk is so good there, and I think that's one thing that a lot of courses overlook is how just the walk from one tee to the next, the flow of the round can really make for an enjoyable round compared to there's so many courses where 
you're done with the green and you're like you're lost and you got a quarter mile to go to the next tee and that kind of it doesn't it's not necessarily a bad thing but it, i think you're losing a little something where cypress point is like you just you hold out and there's the next tee and the flow of the game is so good there it's so good it's just right there and all the holes merge together so well that's one of the tenets of uh golden age architecture that was certainly lost in a lot of american courses it's coming back though i mean you'll see you know pants and dope they they get that and they they build courses with tee boxes right next to the greens and so um, the the future of golf design i think is in great hands right now do you walk pretty much everything i think i remember i mean we walked every time what's your split between walk and ride yeah if i can walk i walk I go with the flow though, but if everybody's out there and it's you know one of these days where everybody just wants to ride, I'm not going to pitch a fit about making that, you know, being able to walk. But I mean, I get if there's an option, I'll I'll do the walking, and it's probably 80-20. I mean, the course I played today is not an, was not an easy walk, but I was stoked to walk it because I hadn't played in a couple of days and wanted to get the the full experience. And yeah, I mean, if you're driving in a cart, it's it's a different type of golf versus Strolling the fairways, seeing the the course, and just taking it all in, you, you know your surroundings are are not an easy go. It's the grass and the the sand and the golf, and you're yeah. you're selling yourself short if you're hopping into a cart every couple minutes. That's my my own personal belief. I've been known to go on a few different rants about uh, the the uh, what the carts have kind of done to especially just our younger generation, I think it just was such a convenience that we didn't even question, you know, a lot of facilities just put your bag on a cart and, and you go. And I, I just think a lot of us don't even realize what we're missing out on if we don't pull our bag back off and, uh, you know, walk. And, and even like the scenario you talk about where the whole group's riding, I don't want to make a fuss. I've been there, but this past like three years, I've started making that fuss and the cool thing is, like, people start to to walk with you, you know, they'll t- take a f- few hole. And I, I can't tell you how many times a guy that's been in a cart all day, like, gets out to walk a fairway with me uh, on 15, and they go, oh, this is nice. I, I should walk more. It's like, well, yeah, this is the way the game was, was meant to be played. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it. Um, there was, God, there's a Pete Dye course in – um, in New York, and I had a couple guys out there, and they were all loaded up on the carts. And I was like, let's walk. And it was like hot as could be. I mean, it was freaking hot. Like, we're just sweating. And these guys were not used to, to doing that, but they were like, okay, we'll walk. <laughs> and we sweated and nearly died out there on that course. But I mean, I it made for a great round of golf, and I don't know, there's, I would have hated to, to ride and just sweat in that, that cart all day. And why not get out there and walk and sweat? It's more of a exercise. And then afterwards, that's how I keep my figure, you know, you <laughs> whatever you want afterwards. All right. So I don't want to, you got me ranting. I didn't mean to do that, but uh, seeing so many different courses this year, is there something small that you now notice about golf clubs or, or different golf courses that you, maybe you didn't before, but now you absolutely love. Gosh, something small. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is nothing jumps to my mind. There's so many things about golf courses that are small and make a difference when you add them all up. Right. And something that 
that was just kind of an interesting thing that I've noticed. Um, all the golf courses have their different tee markers. And so I started taking pictures of the, the interesting ones. And most of them, I'd say maybe maybe less than half the time, I don't take a picture because it's just a wooden block or it's nothing special. It's painted a certain color. But I don't know. I like the I like the courses that will get out there and, and do something interesting, whether it's an ode to the land that they built the golf course on or the, a local industry or just a, a story. Um, those things are pretty cool. So I've got a I got a folder of maybe 200 different key markers, and I was going through a I just flipped through in a slideshow the other day. I was like, man, this is really pretty cool. I'm not sure what I should do with that. Maybe like a an online quiz. What number of uh, of key markers can you correctly identify? Some of them I can't even remember. I, you know, I played so much so many golf courses. Like I have no idea, but some of them are pretty cool. What What was the most unique? Oh, the, the one, the ones at um, at Oakmont are like these these big bullet things, and they they weigh like maybe like twenty pounds. And the funny thing is, I was playing with a bunch of caddies out there at Oakmont, and they're like, "Yeah, when one of the, the caddies, we don't like one of the caddies or something, we just take one of the T markers, and put it in his his, his <laughs> flying back, and you just weigh the thing down." Um, that those those were pretty cool because they were just so heavy. Um, I mean, everything from like, uh, there was one that had big giant geese out there. It was a trance design in Southern California. The name eludes me right now. They're all blended together. I used to be yeah. so much better pulling them off, but you know, you, your brain only has capacity for maybe a couple hundred golf courses, and then it then it gets a little more challenging. But yeah, if I could go through that that file, I could probably talk about that for thirty minutes. Anything that uh, you now notice that maybe drives you nuts or just isn't is your fave? Like, is there any anything you see a lot of at golf clubs that are just like, eh, I can do without that? Well, yeah, there's, there's the big ones that are everywhere, and we kind of touch we touch on it with the the cart path, um, oh, yeah. cart path, the walking, the and then one thing we haven't touched on but is so big in terms of just the feel of a golf course is the housing and the environment surrounding it. If you have a bunch of you, every one of us has played through a residential golf club and it, it takes so much away from the pure golf experience. Not to say I've, I've loved some great residential tracks. I love, I love all golf courses, but when you start putting a bunch of houses around golf holes, it becomes a little less, spiritual or a little less magical in some of the courses where you know i was up today in um new mexico there's no houses around there i was just it felt like i was in the i don't know if you've seen the movie the hills have eyes <laughs> so I, I i've actually got a fun story i'm going to put together um i pretended that i was hunting a the new mexico monster which is the nickname for the black mesa golf club it's a pretty good little pretty good little story that i came up with but you know things like that it inspires you know, creativity and, and just kind of wonder being a nature thing that a lot of people identify with in the game of golf. You start putting houses out there. I think that takes that a little bit away from, from the game, but I mean, there's some of the, the best golf courses in the world still have quite a few homes on them. So it's not to say that it's a, it's a game ruiner, but if you, if you line those fairways, it changes the feel of your golf course dramatically. It's a, I get it. You know, I mean, the same with the carts. It's a golf is a business and people need to make money, whether that's through real estate or 
people paying for for rides on their easy goes. I mean, you'd lose a lot of golfers if they couldn't couldn't cart it. For sure. And there's people that uh, definitely need to ride and they should ride. You know, it's not. Yeah, I, I think it's just what do you prefer and, and then just prefer it, you know, but if people like are defaulting to the cart, that's what drives me nuts. Yeah. And I think, you know, the courses you've got, the guys are getting really good at hiding cart paths. If they, they need to have the cart paths in there. I mean, you won't even see them in, in some instances. I think, you know, Fazio is really good at it. He kind of started to, to do that in, in the nineties. And now the, the new courses, you know, the band and dunes, the sand valleys, they're like, we're not doing cart paths. They're going back yeah. to the, pure stuff i love to see that yeah and then your 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 drone probably can find some of those hidden car paths though can't it yeah the drone drone sees all the drone sees all (laughs) i I don't like to have the cart path in the in the shot some very rarely it does it make for a cool foreground or an interesting thing maybe if you get up high i've taken some cool images of in palm springs of just the, the pastel homes lining a Nicholas course or something like that. So not to say that it can't be interesting, but it's, um, it, it just a different flavor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like your take on, on the residential homes. Cause I, I've played a lot of good residential courses too. And in the golf, if you, if you really try to just focus on the golf, it's, it can still be good. And, and, uh, the thing about it though, is when you're out there, it just kind of k- takes you out mentally of, being in nature like you said uh or just walking without any other thoughts and you see kind of the homes and you start thinking about did i turn the oven off what do i got to do when i get home what are we doing for dinner you know i don't know it's just it's the subtle little things that um you you like to be out there at peace with your game and other in the company of others and it's kind of just a distraction i guess yeah yeah i think there's a difference between a, home, a golf course is just each hole is lined on both sides with houses. And then some of the classic designs where the entire property will be in the middle of a neighborhood with houses around it. But when you're in the middle there, you're lost in that, that golf heaven. Yeah, that's you know? true. That's true. Even so, some of the more classic ones that are landlocked, you know, cause they're built a hundred years ago. That's, that's very true about them all, all around the, the skirts. You're going to have a bunch of, of homes, but inside the middle, it's just, just golf. That's right. Cool. Uh, well, I want to get to this little segment we call Inside the Leather. Uh, okay. So this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a concept or topic with you, and you're going to tell me to either pick it up or putt it out. If it's pick it up or golfers, it means it's good. Put it in the pocket, it's good to go. If you wanted to putt it out, we need to see a little bit more. You're just not sure about that one. Ready to okay. go? I am. I, I'm slightly confused, but I <laughs> actually I think this game goes better when people are confused. So let's just dive okay. in. Uh, okay. The the mapping service ways. Pick it up. Pick it up. Do you use it on tour? Is that what you use in the van? Um, no, I use Google Google Maps, but I I was like, man, I should use ways. <laughs> well, I. I, so I I think it's good. Okay, pick it up. How about Die Hard as a Christmas movie? Oh yeah, that's we're gonna put that one out. And most good, no, because it's, it's it's definitely good, right? So I'm I'm putting it out because I want to see more of it. I want to see more Bruce Willis shooting up bad guys. It's it that works too, but pick it up because it's good. 
and then put okay, it out because you're you're not sure. Maybe not. Okay, so, yeah, we're picking that one up. I mean, if you don't think Die Hard is a Christmas movie, I don't know what to tell you. I'll tell you. Is that at, at the Canning House? Is that what the, you know, it's Christmas Eve, everyone's settling in with hot cocoa. Do you pull out Die Hard? Yeah, I mean, we do the Christmas story too. You can't go just Die Hard, but Die Hard needs to be in the rotation. You know, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Like, oh, Christmas. <laughs> uh all right pick it up or put it out clubhouse showers well pick it up clubhouse showers i mean i would i would stink pretty bad if it wasn't I, for clubhouse showers i i assume that that's like gotta be a godsend to you right is all these private clubs oh. have like the best showers in america yeah i've got a shower here in the rgv and it's it's very basic so it gets the job done but let me tell you some of the, I mean, it's like you're you're living in a just a, a penthouse when you go into some of those places. They're they're fantastic, very heavy flow. I mean, there's a there's a thing amongst the elite clubs, and I I think I mean I haven't experienced the ones at Pine Valley, but I went into I mean the one that sticks out that nobody talks about, Memphis Country Club. I went in there and about drowned. They have it's like a the the thing on the top is like the size of a saucer. And you just turn it on, and it just sweeps you away with glorious hot water after a sweaty or a cold or whatever day out there in the links. And uh, you can really treat yourself, you know, pretend like you're a, a member at these high clubs, high class clubs. And you gotta, you can't not take advantage of those, especially when you're a, a golf hobo like myself. I I never skip them. Clubhouse showers, they're they're amazing to a golfer after four or five hours. Yeah, All do right. it. Do it. I mean, I know you can go home and shower at your your own place, but if you get a chance, just hop in there. See what it's all about. All right. They know what they're doing. All right. Pick it up, put it out. Chain hotels. Oh, put it out. Put it out. We got yeah. our first put it out. I felt like you'd kind of dodge on that. If you were staying, do you ever do you ever uh, reserve a hotel or, or uh, yeah, Airbnb or something? No. I mean, if I've got my RGV, I'm sleeping in it. I've got some, some people that have uh, been – super gracious and open their homes to me and you know they give me a bed and i was like you know i can just sleep in the sleep in your driveway in my because all my stuff's in there it's like my little home and i and you know if i'm moving in i gotta take all my stuff out the toothbrush and all this stuff and it's just it becomes a little more of a just a, it's another thing to do and i'm comfy here in the the rgv it's not it's not the hilton but it's um it's it's great and um one thing that I learned because of that is that you don't really need that much stuff when you're doing what you want to do every day. You know, when you're living life, the, the, the stuff that I put in storage when I left, I mean, I don't even know what's in there anymore. I, I mean, if it would all just throw it all away, I do have a big, huge TV in there that I want to get back to someday. But, you know, for the most part, you don't need as much stuff as you think you do when you're living a quality life and enjoying your, your moments in the world and exploring. And so that is a new, I think everybody kind of says that, but once you start to, to do something along those lines, it really sinks in. And that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in the RGV tour. Cause man, when I got out of college, I was like, man, I need to get a lot of money and I get a need to get a lot of stuff. Now it's like so many kids in America. That's what you think, you know, you see, materialism and the things go on and it's just you're kind of 
raised that way. And the RGV tour has, has taught me otherwise. That is, uh, that's pretty profound. And, and I'm, I love that you shared it. Cause I, I, and two things I, I definitely remember, um, from playing with you is one, how much you value experiences and, and people and being around, you know, different folks and, and learning things. And then the second is how, how good the RGV actually smelled. The scent that greeted me was like, it, it, it was as fresh as a new car. Like I couldn't believe it. Yeah. That's one thing. I also can't believe it. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I, I figured by like, I don't know, month two, the thing was just going to stink like a foot and it was going to be horrid. But no, I mean, I get seasonal in here. We've got, you know, I've got a, a nice pumpkin spice, still pumpkin spice season. Um, so we burn the candle every once in a while. You know, we're constantly washing the sheets and, and doing the laundry so that I don't keep stuff around here that's going to start stinking. And, yeah, it's a a, a pleasant place to, to hang out. It is. It, it's a sweet pad, and uh, you decorate it well. Um, so last two, in the inside the leather, last two, pick it up and put it out, practice swings. Pick it up. I think I – think, um, I mean, you got to go into a little bit of explanation there because, you know, maybe it's a put it out because depending on what you define as a practice swing, I don't take many practice swings. Like, I mean, on the first tee, if I don't hit range balls, I really crank them, crank them out. But those are kind of just like loosen it up. I more just kind of sweep the dew, imagine the shot, feel, feel the shot, and just kind of waving that club around. But you should never take a practice, you know, you – it reminds me of like the amateurs you see a lot and they get up there and they do their practice swings and like, Oh, that'd have been a good one. <laughs> if I hit the ball with my practice swing, they're really like really focused on that practice swing. I think that takes a little bit of a uh, bit away from the feel of the, I'm a feel player. And so the feel of the shot and just visualizing it, if you're just trying to make this perfect practice swing, well, you're, you're selling yourself short and on some of the better players always visualize it and they feel it. And they just dial in on that versus you know, that's what the practice thing is supposed to do. I love, I, lo- I like that a lot. Um, all right, last one. Pick it up or put it out. Selecting Yoshi in Super Mario Kart. Oh, put it out. I, well, I think we had this conversation, right? <laughs> it, I, I had to bring it up being a very avid participant in my adolescent years. Yoshi's not a bad, it's a great great option for the majority of Mario Karters. But if you are in the elite level and you are looking to set world records, Yoshi is by far the worst, the worst selection that you can make. Yoshi's got a very high acceleration out of the gate. Boom. If you're running into a lot of stuff, it's great because you hit and just you're back at an original pace, but his top speed is super low. And the two that you want to do, if you're, you're, you're the master at Mario Kart are either Bowser or Donkey Kong. They've got a slow acceleration, but their top speed is like twice that of, of Yoshi. You can just bomb around, but if, as soon as you run into something, you're screwed. So if you plan on hitting nothing and you're, you're Bowser, you're going to dominate. But if you hit one or two things, Yoshi might might smoke you. So it depends on your depends on your skill level. And I, I was surprised. I thought I think most I thought most people just were this was common knowledge, um, but maybe it's not. 
No, you stopped me in my tracks, man. I rethought my whole life after you shared that <laughs> knowledge with me. And I and I looked it up. Uh, and there's you're right, all the world record holders are Bowser, Wario, the, the heavy, the heavy uh weight with with speed, max speeds. And and even they, they said that like uh head to head, once you get to a certain level, like yeah, if if you get hit with a um shell, you know, you slow down, but uh, those guys still are statistically statistically going to be better for most Mario Kart players, which there's this guy, <laughs> you, you know, you and I are talking about Mario Kart now. There's this guy that did a whole statistical analysis, breaking down every single player. The article was like 20 pages. I, I didn't oh last very long, it's but it's like a master's thesis or something. It, I think it was, it had to have been his, his thesis, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the, uh, the hot take from this episode is um don't be fooled gang selecting yoshi can be uh detrimental to your your mario kart career yeah it can i mean most people i think will fall in the category of just maybe a mario would be their best selection because they're not they're not world record setters right they can all be enjoyed they can all be it's kind of like golf right it's kind of like golf with your equipment and course it's it can all be enjoyed yeah not everybody needs to play blades which is Bowser and Donkey Kong. I think that's the perfect analogy there that we were looking for. Maybe you need some big cavity backs because you're going to be hacking it all over the place. Then, yeah, you should not be not not be swinging the the blade stick. So, what's your you're wrapping this up? You're done January 31st, right? What's the finale look like? What's the uh, the run to the end? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're we're deep into the tour with very very few states remaining. And the states remaining, I haven't been to Nevada yet, so we'll get that one. Uh, we'll be a new state. We'll, we'll head up to Vegas. Um, I'm going to, I think, play another round here in New Mexico tomorrow. Then we're going back to, to Phoenix. I mean, it's, it's wintertime, and Phoenix is, is prime. I mean, they're opening up a lot of great courses there for winter golf. So I'll spend some time there. And then I've got a little little jaunt. I'm headed down to the Dominican Republic to do some uh, do a little media trip there. So a little little bit of a treat in the in the final leg and then we'll move into California. We'll obviously do Palm Springs. You could spend forever there. I don't know. There's probably like 600 golf courses in Palm Springs. Um, so we'll obviously go, go there. I've got some friends there. And then, then it's down to, we'll start at San Diego and just cruise on up to band and dune. And, and that's the big finale. We've got limited space available and you're obviously right at the top of the list. We want you there. And it's it's Bandon Dunes. We're got, we've got the Bandon Bonanza. We're just putting together some of the promotional stuff to to put it out there. I don't know how many people we're going to have join from across the country, but I've met some great people that I know would gladly jump on a plane to experience Bandon and to see the very end of the RGV tour. I don't think it'll be the very end because I still got to drive up to Washington. And if there's a day, I'm gonna I'm just, I'm still gonna play. But that'll be the full that'll be the full year. I mean that'll be that'll be the twelve months there and a big a big celebration there. We'll obviously the the first tee will be in attendance. Evan will be there, and so um, we'll probably wait to do the check ceremony. There's a little bit of details, but I mean it's you can't imagine a better place to wrap up twelve months of outstanding golf than at one of the the nation's best public courses and probably the the story of the past decade when it comes to new golf courses that have been unleashed upon this world and the RGV tour will wave the 
finale flag there on the 30th, 31st, and then February 1st. We're gonna we're gonna do it right. Fantastic, and congrats. I mean, it's what a road, what a journey. Um, you, we could probably talk for hours about all your experiences and people you've met, and uh, it's just really cool. And all the work you're doing for the first tee is also great to see. Um, and we, we appreciate you joining us. What, what are you going to do that last week, that week, the first week after the RGB tour is, is pulling into town? What are you going to do? Are you going to pick up tennis or like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to throw the golf clubs in the trash. No, I mean, I, I, I absolutely won't. I think I'll be, I'll be sad. I mean, I've, I've loved this year and to not have just something miraculous to look forward to every day in terms of just playing golf will be a, will be a change. But I think, you know, people I tell them the story like, Oh, you got to write a book. And so I think I'll sit down and maybe kind of put it all together and see what I can pull out the best of the tour. Cause if I write a book, I'd be like, this would be like 900 pages long of all the, the courses and things that happen. But there's some things that stick out to me and a lot of photographs that, that do as well. And so if people want a book, well, hell, maybe I'll just, uh, I'll give them one and, I think it'd be a great experience to just just write something and have it all down in a in a book format, whatever that looks like. And so, you know, I'll bug I'll bug the publishers, see what we can get going. But there's other books out there that that are like it and have been very successful. So I don't see why we couldn't put something put something magic on on paper. The tour, in my mind, was a was a great experience, and I feel like people want to hear about it. They want more of it, and I think it'd be a great read. Well, I, I love being a little bit, a little part of it. Um, I know our, our members enjoy following along with you, um, you know, li- living the dream and sharing it with, with everybody out there. It's, uh, it's good of you. So we'll, we'll pick up the book and we'd love to have you join us for a tournament or one of our events sometime when you're passing back through the Midwest. Oh, I'd love to do it. Tell me in. That was Patrick Koenig, founder of the RGV Tour, and wedding dance aficionado. Thanks, Patrick, for your time, inviting me to play with the RGV Tour, and most importantly, what you're doing for the kids in the Pacific Northwest. 